You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome, everyone. Um, thank you for joining us um, uh, for this lunchtime conversation, which is presented um, by Dance House in partnership with Asia Topa Public Programme. My name is Angela Conke. I'm artistic director of Dance House. And before I introduce these wonderful speakers, I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on indigenous land, the land of the Bunurong of the Kulin Nation, and to pay our respects to their land and elders past, present, and future. Um, the conversation that you are here for is part of a series of two, today and tomorrow. And um, I have asked two of our closest collaborators and friends to, um, to prepare these um, very interesting topics. Uh, today and tomorrow, um, and I would like to introduce uh, Dr. Philippa Rothfield, who's um, Dance House's creative advisor, co-editor of the Dance House Diary, and a dear colleague and friend, and Dr. Priya Srinivasan, another friend of Dance House and a very treasured artist whom we had the pleasure of having in Dance House uh, not so long ago. Um, and as speakers today, um, Takao Kawaguchi, visiting from Japan as jury for the Kia Choreographic Award. Linda Sastro-Dupraja, who's a local practitioner, choreographer, pedagogue. And Amara Rahim, a multidisciplinary artist, whom again we've had the joy of having um, in resonance with dancers for a while. And now I'd like to hand it over to Philippa to um, tell you all about the dynamics of taste. So the way that this uh, panel came about is um, because Philippa and I started having a conversation around what the terms of engagement in Melbourne and elsewhere seem to be around uh, the concept of the contemporary, uh, which we have had lots of dialogues about, um, as we all seem to have very different definitions around what that is, and yet there seems to be a, sort of like a monolithic um, presentation of it uh, in the most sort of mainstream spaces around what that work is. So we just wanted to trouble that term um, at the moment, at this moment in time, uh, to actually look at how colonial structures may have contributed to how we even think of what the contemporary is, something we don't tend to talk about very much, um, particularly because we don't look at time in the same way. So those are the basic main ideas for why we started this panel and also the Dance House Diary, which if you don't have a copy, please do. This is Angela's um, vision for what Dance House can do is not just as practice, but also really asking questions and having dialogues um, here in Melbourne, around Australia and around the world to challenge some of these concepts. So uh, greetings, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, it's lovely to see you all. It's going to be quite an intimate conversation. So feel free to move forward one. Um, or what? Or to the middle. Or you could just stay where you are if you prefer. <laughs> and so we're hoping that this will be quite a fluid conversation. But each of our people has really, really important and interesting things to say. So we're going to try and manage it to give everybody space to say things, but also to try and open up some movement of thought so it's not thought belongs to anyone, thought something that moves. 
Um, I'd just like to introduce our three speakers in a little bit more detail without my glasses. So, but I know that you're a Mara. Rahim's practice is performance. You make your own work and also work for and with others. Amara has made home in three cities across three continents, Asia, Europe and Australia. Um, her work crosses borders, geographic, spatial, disciplinary. And dancing has always been, for Amara, entwined with words. She's fascinated at how language moves. Welcome everybody, come in, grab a seat. Amara Rahim is especially interested in collaborating with practitioners from different fields to make interdisciplinary political dance artwork, works that prioritise a great slowing down or a quiet revolution. Amara is completing a practice-based PhD at the School of Architecture and Urban Design at Melbourne's RMIT University. Now, next to me, we have Linda Sustra-Depraja, whose dance career is really quite enormous, encompassing dancing, teaching, directing, producing, mentoring, researching, and creatively engaging with dance and dancers over many years in many countries. Uh, Linda was a student and graduated from VCA with distinction, Victorian College of the Arts, which is over the road. And she has, she moved to New York and performed internationally with American artists and companies, including Mikhail Baryshnikov's White Oak Dance Project, twi working directly with choreographers, including Twyla Tharp, Merce Cunningham, Mark Morris and Tara O'Connor, Sarah Rudner, Dennis O'Connor Dance, Dinah Wrights, Melissa Fenley, in Hong Kong with the City Contemporary Dance Company and with Australian artists and companies including Dance Exchange and Opera Australia and Ballet Lab and Dance Works. <laughs> so Linda's, <laughs> is that tiring just to hear all of that? So um, she, she's also, you can see photos of Linda by the renowned dance photographer, Lewis Greenfield. So welcome. And Linda's also works with Russell Dumas and Dance Exchange as a performer and artistic associate. And thirdly, but not leastly, is Takao Kawaguchi. Welcome from Tokyo as a Tokyo-based artist. Um, Takao performed with Dumb Type between 1996 and 2009 and has also created a number of solo works from 2000 onwards, um, also collaborating with artists from other disciplines, so also kind of multidisciplinary as well. In the style, perhaps, of performance theatre, and I suppose the question of style and category is something that will probably come up for all of us in our conversation. In 2012, um, Takao made a work called The Sick Dancer, based on Tatsumi Hijikata's book, and then in 2013 made a work that some of you may have seen called about Kazuo Ono, which was re reliving the Buto Divas masterpieces, and that was also shown at Dance House at the last Asia Topa two years ago. That work about Kazuo Ono, which we hope you'll probably talk about, had 73 shows in over 35 cities around the world, so it certainly moved around. Despite these last two works being Bhutto-related, 
Kawaguchi isn't a Buto artist as such, but perhaps a contemporary or dancer, performer, choreographer. Maybe some of these categories are open and in a way our conversation will probably open the question of category as well. So welcome to you three. Thank you very much for joining us today. And since some of you came a little bit late, we just wanted to tell you that the topic for today is the term contemporary. What does that mean? And how we, do we think about time? Amara, would you like to begin? Uh, sure. Um, Some thoughts on how your practice has explored what is contemporary. Um, hi, everyone. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the, there was an invitation to join this panel and alongside the invitation, um, an, a subsequent invitation to sort of prepare something. Um, and in that in itself was, uh, yeah, that in itself took me um, somewhere because I wanted to make a puncture into this topic of contemporary. And I felt that the best way to do it is to maybe speak about a project that I, uh, that is resonating in my life. Um, I talked about it yesterday and many of you were actually, I, I see some very familiar faces yesterday, so you might hear about it again, which is that I lived um, for two years at Cecil Street Studios in Fitzroy in Melbourne, which, is a, which was a dance studio for 21 years. Um, and I lived there as a, uh, as I, lived, I lived my life there, as in I had a room there. And um, the, living there was very much in relationship to some of the questions that I've been exploring as a choreographer and performer that has situated my practice in the School of Architecture and Urban Design. So um, some questions that came up for me that are recurring for me in terms of time, like rhythmic questions in my life, in terms of contemporary is how or what is a home? And how or, or how do I think about a structure of home? Um, I was really interested in, I'm really interested in archive and archive is a historic somehow. Um, uh, an archive is, is a, a series of events that has already happened. But I'm also interested in archives of things that, have, that haven't happened yet or speculative fictions and how we might think about disappearance and loss as something of the future, not only of the past. Um, so some questions that came up for me living at Cecil Street Studio. How did the building sound? These are questions of contemporary dance. How did the building sound? What was its function? What can be said about the life of the architects? Um, how can I bottle the smell of that building? Um, how can I creatively make a document of a building that has a past that is only oral or gestural but not written down and refuses writing? Um, how can I make a reflection on the staircase and the lifespan of the structure's secrets? 
What are the voices of the building? Ongoing questions in contemporary, my, my practice of contemporary um, are questions of belonging and identity. Um, how to reside. It was a communal space. It wasn't just mine. It was ours, but it was mine within an hour, as in O-U-R rather than H-O-U-R. Yeah. Um, how to reside in a communal space, in particular a dance studio with the specificity of being a dance studio. Does residing there Whatever your occupation or trajectory in life then make you a dancer? What's the relationship between art and residence more broadly? And what's the relationship between my practice and domesticity? That's great. As a fantastic start for all these questions. Thank you so much. Perhaps Takao. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about how you came into your practice uh, and how you work with the term contemporary in your work or not? Um, so that you said the word identity. So identity is what you are, I guess. And uh, so I have never felt comfortable uh, saying that I'm a dancer, I'm a performer, I'm a choreographer. I really haven't it's, it has been changing, I don't know. Sometimes I say I'm this, I'm sometimes, some other times I'm that. Um, I studied as a, I was a, a very athletic, playing volleyball for a long time until, you know, uh, university. And then all of a sudden I started going to theater and uh, a little later uh, dance. So when I started dance, I was only able to run, jump, roll, and get up and run and jump. And so, and I wanted to make some stage performances, so that's what I did. Um, I don't know, uh, I have never uh, learned dance at school or any institution, so I don't have any particular style or technique that I've been using, and in a way, uh, I don't have that foundation, so it's very hard to make dance, but at the same time, I could, have, I could go into any direction and do this, do that, da, 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 and um, so that has been my way of working, and I haven't had any particular theme or topic that I wanted to pursue in, in, uh, in, in this. Performing arts. Um, huh, what can I say? So um, lately, I've been uh, working on this piece about Kazuo Ono, as you introduced uh, about Buto. I I have never studied Buto. I have never met Kazuo Ono, but I thought I wanted to learn something about interior the movements or expression that come from the inside of the body. That's how I thought, and boom, uh, this name, Kazuo Ono, came up in my mind. So, okay, I want to do something about Kazuo Ono. Kazuo Ono is the legendary Buto dancer in Japan who lived until, danced until uh, 103 when he passed away. And uh, all major works have been done 
created and presented after he was 70 years old. And I took uh, some of the, his representative works and watched the videotape and copied his dance. Dance of Kazono has, uh, has been, people say that it's a dance of soul. But I watched the two-dimensional video images and tried to copy his dance. And I, people asked, um, uh, my, uh, my idea was, if you can copy exactly the body, the shape, and movements, you can also copy the soul. So I started that, and uh, I have done whatever I can. And uh, depending on uh, people who approve that or not, but uh, I try to copy the shape. And I approach his da dance of soul from the exteriority. I wanted to do something with the interiority, but what I did was the exteriority. So there's this paradox. But um, going back to the identity, um, well, <laughs> uh, if you read this um, di diary, dance, dance has that diary, uh, my interview is there, and uh, it, it is called Butto Deselfization. Selfization, that's an angel. How? Deselfization. Yeah, I know, I think I, I have said that word. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we talked about identity, but um, then I say deselfization. So erase the identity and copy and become that. Um, I'm not really saying this discourse in a logical way, but I think I'm saying. Um, You're saying I, I think I will. Yeah. And you wanted to say something, Priya. Uh, well, I um, I thought I would wait also till oh. Linda spoke, oh. and then I'll Sorry. I'll say right. something <laughs> after that. But I have lots to say. It's really great to hear both of you speak about your practice without clearly categorizing yourself. So uh, you know, although we've said can you speak or is it can you speak not as a practitioner, but both of you were talking about the practice, like what it is that you're doing rather than offering yourself as a fixed identity. So I think that's already raising some questions. But first, before we I'll let you jump in, Linda, would you have a few words to say? Just a few. I'm, I'm really bad at speaking into these things. Um, I also picked up on the identity that Amara spoke about. Um, but for me, what resonated was um, who creates that identity. And in terms of, you know, this talk being about con contemporaneity, I believe that's an Angela word too. No, she, <laughs> no? she didn't make it up. No, 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 it's not made up, it's just... <laughs> there, it, it's who, def who defines the identity? Like, are we defining our identity? Or is that, you know, being defined by the gaze of somebody else? And that comes back also for me into my practice of dancing. Um, 
when I'm dancing, when I'm making dancing, I'm actually trying to, in my practice, um, get to the crux of the dancer. So who is that person? Where are they coming from? What have their experiences been? It's, it's really about drawing out what is most important and most um, contributory from that individual dancer. And it's very difficult because we have this constant reflective process where I'm in the moment, this is what I think about, this is what I think about me, these are all of these contributing influences, but at the same time, how is this being perceived? So there's just this constant back and forth, back and forth. That happens in my practice, but it also happens in terms of how I approach this topic, which is what is contemporary. And, and again, I sort of ask myself, well, who, who is saying what is contemporary? Um, and in relation to Asia Topa, it comes back to what Priya said at the start, we wanted to trouble this topic because I'm quite troubled about who it is and where the, their perspective is coming from, what it's informed by when they designate a work as being contemporary or traditional or cultural and what frame of reference is that. I think I'm reasonably safe in saying that on the whole we as in Australian society is very Anglo-centric in the way that we just perceive time and that relates to what is contemporary and what's not contemporary. So, um, what am I saying here? It's, it's going into allowing the perspective of the choreographer or the dancer or the artist to define for themselves where they fit on that time spectrum, how they're perceiving it, how they're embodying it, as opposed to us judging it externally. So that, that's something that sort of comes back into my practice and it's questions that I ask as I go through it. Don't know. Great. Great, thank you. Um, hearing all of you, I just wanted to say one thing, but it actually has a lot of things inside it. So stop me if I say too much. But it's, I'm so excited to hear these thoughts um, by all of you. I wanted to actually go very much into the particular and to where we are right now in the land of the Kulin Nation people and to just point that art center out to you, that spire, the white spire rising um, above and really just towering over everything like a panopticon, you know, that is an all-seeing eye that determines what the aesthetic is of this city and what gets to be inside that building and what doesn't um, has been particularly a very interesting process, partly because I grew up in that building doing a practice which we call traditional Indian dance and also contemporary experimental forms um, that the Bharatam Dance Company was doing for 15 years when they were funded by the Australia Council uh, and the Victorian Council for the Arts. And also um, I grew up feeling like I was in the center, that I was the panopticon too. I got to decide what was art. Uh, but I left, and I left for 20 years, and when I returned, 
I realized uh, I, don't, I don't have a space in that building anymore. And it's a metaphor for where the arts have actually travelled in the last 30, 40, 50 years in Australia, symptomatic of Melbourne as well, as to who gets to determine what is um, funded, what is qualified as new work and this newness and this whole way in which what is defined as the new is determined by a very few number of people who then get to decide who is allowed in these spaces and who is not, whose practices belong and who is not. Um, and one of the research questions that I asked when I wrote my book called Sweating Saris, Indian Dance as Transnational Labor, was to actually trouble this concept of the contemporary by looking at the great moderns, such as Ruth St. Dennis, Martha Graham, to actually ask and find out that they were inspired by Indian dance, not only inspired, but actually learned Indian practices, which then got deleted from their forms um, and people suddenly forgot because in the process of modernity, we do not recognize anything that has gone before. We are always new, we're always emergent and is always the solo female, generally, choreographer genius who has gotten their ideas from almost nothing in a way. And so I started to ask this question, well, what if citational practices were possible in modern dance, which has led us to where we are now? How would we actually rethink time itself and who we owe for where we are today? And the other side of the equation, the Indian classical dance that I was trained in, when I left Melbourne is when I actually found out it was not a classical 3,000-year-old tradition, but rather a post-1940s nationalist independent form that had been created in response to a different kind of impetus of modernity. But that we were masking our modernity and saying that we were traditional to prevent the effects of colonialism. So these two supposed oppositional practices are in fact quite hybrid and quite related to each other. And that is where for me the question of the contemporary and how do we each think of time and how do we think of presence coming back to what you said, the emptying of the self to find this other subject. That is a question the practices that I do have always been asking. But I find it very interesting in relation to your question, Linda, around how do you actually ask questions in the place of the practitioner? Where is that toggling? And I think this to me is what's interesting about how one sees oneself in understanding the contemporary. As a philosopher, I actually do really like concepts and, and a lot of you have been bringing up the notion of time or the concept of time and you uh, very challengingly and nicely talked about an archive that hasn't happened yet. And for you, Takao, like on the one hand, this is the most accurate rendition of Kazuo Ono that I can manage and yet it's from these external points of view of a Bhutto practitioner who works from the inside out. So there's this kind of flipping or turning inside out, like a Mobius strip. It starts one way and it ends up going the other way and then goes one way. And there's a, someone who I started reading called Bruno Latour and he has a book called We Have Never Been Modern. And he talks about modernity, but I would flip it and talk about contemporaneity or the contemporary as 
we're working with this, this idea that what's happened happened in the past and then that's left behind and there's stuff's happening now, here we are, blah, 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 goes into the past and then the future's something ahead as if it's like a ticker tape. But there seem to be so many ways in which there are crossovers and he talks about the way in which we try to arrange things so that they are seen as contemporary. So for him, the contemporary is the result of putting all the square pegs in a row and then getting rid of the round ones. So there's a sort of fabrication of the contemporary. And like Linda, I think you... Did you say or did I dream that you said that the contemporary is a westernised or that we tend to impose a... Did you my, say that? My, percep my perception is yeah. that it is a westernised or an Anglo-centric concept that is imported as an explanation or a designator of this is a contemporary, this is a traditional, this is a So cultural. they're exclusive so categories and you can't have mixing of the categories. Well, I think there's been well, attempts to be to have them mixed, but the fact that there's categories at all is yes. my trouble. That we have them or that they're thought to designate distinct things, that the body, if we think of the body as an archive, mm. the body as an historical, the body has a legacy, is time clearly defined in the body? And then if we have like the way in which you were talking, Takao, in a way in which creating the work, go away, <laughs> creating the work actually produces a sense of history in the present through the making through the creation of technique rather than I have the technique first and then I do what I do. So there just seems to be some real mixing of categories around what I would call a notion of the linearity of time, as if it's kind of coherent and one follows the other follows the other. And yet I think some of the categories that you're talking about, Linda, contemporary, traditional, modern, do they have a notion of time embedded in them? And how does that work with Western practices or non-Western or mixtures thereof? You drew breath. Can I, can I just say one thing there, which is that the colonial practice or colonisation was justified by putting the people that they colonised as backward in time. Mm. And therefore, the, colon, the coloniser gets to be the new, gets to be in the present, and everyone else is kind of put backward in time. And I think this is that legacy of Western modernity in a way, that way of we've actually got people that are going to be separate, different to us, to justify our domination over them. And to me, it's interesting to look at our artistic practices now in a similar way, that if we actually put people at different time frames in this linear model, it's then easy to say, well, this is why we dominate. This is why we are allowed to dominate. Can I just... Can I, Go ahead. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to speak to that and in terms of the categorizations, just to um, make clear that I don't necessarily subscribe to these. Um, yeah, that the parameters that are put around them and that, I mean, and, and I'm included, that we accept as the norm are, you know, part of the, that colonisation process. I did want to share a little um, 
suppose it's an anecdote. It was part of a M Pavilion talk here, and it was with the cast of Seen and Unseen. I'm not sure if um, people saw that. It was an yeah an Indonesian um, theatre performance that was drawn from a rural Balinese community. It had young people as well. Anyway, um, the choreographer was asked. Now, what was the question? It was um, clearly, the, particularly the young people have some sort of a cultural practice that we can see it in their bodies and you have tapped into this traditional cultural practice in order to choreograph the, the piece, the score, for this theatre piece. And her answer to that was that that was not the case. She said, I don't understand what you mean by traditional and cultural. She said, where we are from, there is a ritual that we have every morning that is part based on yoga, that's part based on wellness, it's part based on community. Everybody gets together, we do these morning exercises, we all join in. And she said, so that's a shared, embodied um, repertoire or vocabulary that we have. And she said, when I came to actually making the choreography, I, I could draw on those things, but I also went to YouTube and I also went to see, because these are young people, what would be interesting to them? But she said, the issue of it being traditional or contemporary was, she, sa she said, we had that moment years and years ago in Indonesia, in Bali. She said, we had that moment in the 70s, so I'm not really sure what it is that you're asking. So when they asked her about what was that moment, it was the moment when um, Balinese culture was widely discovered by the American university systems. And there, there was this wonderful, look at this, you know, let's take this, what is this? This is traditional, this is cultural, this is whatever. And she said, well, we had to actually have a think about what is traditional. This is dancing that everybody has done and has done since we've always done it. But if we track that back, that dancing is movement that we've always done. So how far back are we going to go? Are we going to go to virtually prehistory of when did we start moving? Because we never at any point said this is our art form and never at any point did we decide this is our tradition. You know, our culture is as we live it day to day and it's as much our culture today in the contemporary as it was when people started making these sorts of moves and expressing themselves in, through this dance. So I thought it was really interesting that she basically like came right to the crux of that, what is contemporary, what is cultural, what is traditional, and said, well, from our perspective, it's a, it's a moot point. But that's the thing. When you actually ask people how they define themselves, yeah. it's very different to defining them. them. Yeah. Can, yeah. I, um, can I tell you a story? Um, when, so we came to Australia, um, my family and I came to Australia in 1984, uh, one year after the riots broke out in Colombo, Sri Lanka, where I was born and the Civil War sort of officially began. And when I came to Australia at that time, I was 10 years old, and um, I remember uh, a few things. One, I remember standing at Melbourne Airport 
and realizing for the first time in my life that I was brown. I didn't, I didn't know that before I came to Australia because I was surrounded by brown people. So I, I, I didn't know that I was that color until I was surrounded by other than brown. And then I realized in that moment. Um, and as I realized that, I made a, a, a decision um, age 10, which is that I was never going to speak Sinhalese again. I was going to only speak in English. Um, that my mother tongue was like I was going to erase um, erase that from my um, uh, from myself, and uh, because I couldn't erase the color of my skin, but I could change what I sounded like, so that if you were to speak to me on the phone, you would think that I'm Australian. Um, and that became like a practice. And so I went through a, a few years where I tried to change my accent uh, and did successfully. But although my accent is actually built on quite rocky ground, so it's the kind of accent that still adapts and shifts. Um, and my parents accepted this decision of me not speaking Sinhalese. I mean, there was a lot of things that they didn't accept in modern Australia and made me do out of a cultural affiliation or something that I wasn't affiliated to. But one thing that they didn't force was that I continue to speak Sinhalese. And then it's a big regret in my life that I don't speak this language. Um, I understand bits and pieces, but I, 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 it's like I, I submerge something so deeply that I can't actually access it. Um, of course, if I go and live in Sri Lanka and study it, I'm sure it, it will return. But I, I asked my mother if, about 10 years ago um, whether she regretted not letting me, like not forcing me to speak Sinhalese. I said, is that a regret for you as much as it is for me? And she said, of course not. English is your future. And I think we all understood, like I understood that English is my future. And speaking English, like, to a superb level was going to give me power. I, I understood that 10 years old. And my parents understood that. And they... But one thing that I also realized that I didn't know was that in my father's family, when Sri Lanka got independence, which was the same time as India in 1948, um, there was a push from the government then, because English was spoken quite widely in the middle and upper classes, and there was a push in the country for it to become Sinhalese again. And the history of my family is that I come from a lineage where we pushed back for English. Like, we fought to keep English as the... So, in some ways, like... I always thought, oh, I knew that English was my future and then I learnt that actually in my bloodline is a, a claim on this language. And, I, and so I think my relationship to, you know, I said dancing for me includes words and this is a very deep relationship. This, and when I say words, I mean the English language. But I think what's really underneath all of my practice is a submerged mother tongue that I'm not in the process of relearning like some like indigenous languages that are being reclaimed and relearned because actually there's something about reaching for an iceberg that is part of my practice of of 
actually a lost language in me. It's not lost in the world. Many people speak it. But lost in me, but then also that it has become a structure of loss is, is, is how I... Amidst movement as well, like you're talking about your own mobility and movement yeah, in, in your as a, life. Yeah. And, and for me, movement is dance. It's an aesthetic practice, mm. but it's also being a migrant, mm. the identity of... And multiple belongings because I have... Um, a, you know, I'm at home in Sri Lanka and Australia and also London where I lived for 15 years. So that's space and time now. It's not just temporality, is it? Like it's also, and like Priya, the way you sort of spoke about this place or the specificity of place. Philippa, I think space is time. Right. Space time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I just don't feel it's space and time. Oh, okay. I don't feel that there's space and there's time. I feel like space is time. Is time space? Uh, yep. I mean, there's place and time, and I think place is different to space. Ah, okay. Just making space, <laughs> making space and time for something to emerge. Anyone want to say anything? We will open up to invite you into our conversation also. I want to give everyone here every opportunity. I think, because I had thought of it in relation to um, space and time and the identity of self, the identity of a culture, of a, a group, of a community, of different things that... Um, this has made me rethink, but the, the place and the time, the space that that creates for the individual to contextualise what it is that's happening and to actually um, take some understanding from what those elements combined create sort of in, on an individual level. Um, I think what you've described with your story of how you have come to um, your practice, which is a, a very deeply personal investigation, um, is in, in bigger and smaller versions what we do when we're investigating works, when we're on a, on a larger scale. What is it that we think about this sort of more macro idea and what do we think about, like, when I'm working on that particular dancer is drawing on which particular of those experiential sorts of... Um, Currents. So the, this is the question, right? You look at it like that, but then we find that when people's practices are different, do people ask those same questions? Uh, and I'll give you an example, right? This is something Philippa and I have talked about for a while. Costume, just as an example, just to say costume, right? What, we, what we're wearing when we're performing what we're performing. How does that place you in time and how does that place you in space in a very distinct way? And how do then people ask what is your experiment or are they not even going to ask what is the experiment or questions you're asking but take you at face value? By this I mean if I wear a sari and I wear a bindi 
and I wear, you know, other things that signify an Indian woman's um, clothing. When I perform, the questions that are asked are very different. Even if I'm performing the exact same thing as when I'm dressed like this and I perform that same material, immediately there's a shift in how people are perceiving what it is about this person's body in space and time. And I'm really curious, how can we rethink this? Can I open up our conversation for a moment? I'm just thinking of your work, Devika, not meaning to put you on the spot, but it was such a rich piece that kind of looked at your own biography of time and had filmic representation, something from the past, and then you had your costume. I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about it and if you have any thoughts about that. Oh. Sorry. Let me <laughs> apologise in advance. Um, hi, I'm Devika. Uh, last year I did a performance called Alakala, uh, The Promise of A-Dance. Uh, it was a part of Sangam... A South Asian Performing Arts Festival that was at Dance House. Um, I feel a bit caught off guard because I was deeply trying to question something um, in that space and kind of work through it. But uh, I'm trained in Bharatanatyam, which uh, from the same school that uh, Priya is also trained in. And for a long time, uh, I have to, I'm going to keep this really quick, I've been looking for this kind of thing of like, what is my contemporary body? What is the notion of contemporary for a long time? And in this way, what, how will I dress when I perform this piece? Uh, the, the way that I got into um, finding a work that felt satisfactory in approaching a contemporary concept was that I used time to break through the practice and the traditional forms. So I learnt the form in reverse. I learnt a, a whole three-minute dance from back to front. And so that allowed me to consider so many things and bring in things of queering and my body, my live body with a video of when I was 15, performing it with all the regalia and the, the saris and everything. So there was this tension there and, yeah, it was what was I going to wear? And, you know, like, I just ended up wearing a black kurta with, like, a black um, full-body leotard underneath. So the question then was, do I show my arms? How long is my kurta going to be? Should it be short? You know, what, what signifies, what points to, um, what points to India? What points to another place? What points to an origin but is um, satisfying a contemporary desire for simplicity and minimalism, and why do I have that? You know, so it's it's definitely wound up in the, these things of sig signifying um, and how you want to be signified, and all these different channels of um, yeah uh, perceptions and gazes and, and temporalities. Um, yeah, concurrently, the thing is that it's all concurrent. I don't think I answered the question, but no, it was a rich picture of. The different, some of the different elements that you mm. were weaving into your performance. And it, I just think it sits interestingly with your work about yeah. Kazuo Ono. Like you, on the one hand, had studied the dance and there's this film of Devika, what were you, 16 yeah, or something? 16-year-old yeah. Devika mm, there. Mm. So that really was you, right? Mm, and mm. whereas, like, you're not, never will be <laughs> Kazuo Ono, but... <laughs> doing an incredibly faithful something, 
copying, mm, a something, mm -hmm. a mimetic relationship with the work. So mm. on the one hand, would seem to be authentic identity, on the one hand, emptied out identity. Yeah. But then also, I had to use video as well to learn how to perform in reverse. So I have this mimicry happening mm. as well of myself, of the form of what is presented. Mm. So yeah, there, there mm. are various flips there um, that are really interesting in the space of... Uh, I, I don't know, I'm asking this question of uh, when we question what is um, contemporary, I think maybe I'd like to push it into a space of how do we repeat things? How are things repeated? And, and what, that, what that means for the space of contemporary and repetition with these techniques or with costume or, with, or without. Um, yeah, and modes of fracture and... Yeah, I don't know. Would anyone like to pick up on? Can I? Can I just wanted to say that I, um, I mean, I am I am very interested in copy, in the copy of the copy of the copy, and what I loved about what you just said, um, Takao, and I didn't realize that in the work that you're speaking about is that you tried to copy his soul. Is that? Did you say that? <laughs> My. You know, if you ask a question, can you copy somebody's soul through the, the shapes? And so that, that was the idea that I wanted to, you know, so casting my body into that shape of Kazuono. And uh, I don't think that I have been able to copy his soul, but uh, the... the Trying to do it uh, from that uh, from that action of casting myself into that shape, uh, something else happens, and that could be called the uh, the soul is being searched. Because. Um I w I've been really thinking about time. It was in the blurb, and there's this question about repeating and time and contemporary, which I think is inherent. Time is inherent in contemporary, and I was trying to really think about what, how do I use time? And beyond like duration and the 50-minute show, and like beyond the surface of time of how a work is constructed, I think I realized that I am deeply um, influenced by um, the notion of karma in my practice. I grew up in a Buddhist country. We're not, we, were, we weren't born Buddhists, but um, I was very influenced by living in a Buddhist country. And, um, but Hindus also have the concept of karma. And, and in the concept of karma, I think, and when I say karma, I mean that your actions have consequences. That would be my definition of it, or how I work with it. And um, in Buddhism, there's this other idea that our consciousness is not private. It's, it's public. As in, my intention for generosity, for example, or my intention for kindness actually has consequences in the world. Um, and so... Yeah, Merleau-Ponty talks about consciousness as that which is oriented outwards. We always think of it as something really inside. But what if it's already pointing out? We've got a few minutes left, and I'd just like to invite 
people, anyone who wants to say anything to join the conversation. Oh, there's a, a thing coming there. And it's quite, um, it's about ownership. Could you, you have just to speak into the say mic? Say your name also, please. Barony. My, my name is Barony. Um, it's about ownership as well, that revisiting. So it's about revisiting keeps the continuum alive. It makes it relevant. It makes it give um, uh, a furthering of that reinterpretation. But with you revisiting is that you are doing it with perhaps the notions of the people around, or not that you're conscious of audience, no, but it's, it's through life. So it is in that notion of also um, through the soul, the lack of that ownership. So the, it's, it's, it's a generosity that you have, because in a net different, I would say in a Western sense, you could have uh, interpreted as copyright or something like that. But instead, this has got such a generosity, but, that, um, but also it goes back to how this conversation started about history how through the works you can embed something too much in the, in, and who writes that in the theoretical, but also an avenue for artists to explore and revisit, and an evolution of telling individual stories, but also the collective. They sit separately and together and for both avenues to kind of coexist together rather than categories. Can I invite other people to speak who would like to comment or throw something in or put forward a question? Can I, yeah. can I comment on... I think um, from a, a dancer perspective, what's really... Um, interesting in your response to Takao is that uh, Russell Dumas, who is an Australian artist, he uses the, um, and Philippa you would recognise this, uh, he speaks of the body being colonised by particular genres. Takao, you had mentioned that I didn't have a ballet or a contemporary or a jazz or a this, that or the other. Russell talks about us and our bodies being inscribed by those sorts of things and that over time we are inculcated with the habits that are associated with it and also the way that we practice those genres. So his way of actually approaching dancers to broaden the scope of their movement potential is to have people copy that which he says is, okay, so this is the gold standard of um, whatever it is. This is an excellent dancer doing an excellent um, rendition of a piece of repertoire. Try and get as close as you can, which is, I think, what you were trying to do in order to sort of come externally in order to embrace the internal. And his um, very 
sort of logistical way of doing it is that if you copy, if, if you bring yourself as close as you can to that vision, that, to that idea of something that's outside the self, you'll actually increase your repertoire of your own movement and it's one of the few things that will actually diminish the habits that are so deeply um, held in the body. So I, I find it really interesting that you're using that technique to actually get to the soul of something and whereas in a studio process he uses that technique to try and get rid of what's already there and replace it with a with another type of learning. Yeah. To copy something you have to rid of yourself and become an empty vessel so that something can come in and inhabit your body. And you said ownership, so I try not to own the movements, but really be uh, reduced to the minimum of self and do, so, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think in doing that, there's something new that's created. So then if we're talking about this continuum, yeah. what is contemporary, we've sort of gone around again. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really great place to finish. We've been told we have to stop now. Um, but we urge all of you to come and speak to um, everyone here and hope that we can continue these conversations on a slightly different note tomorrow. Um, please do come and join us same time, 12.30 to 1.30 as we continue these explorations. Thank you so much for being here and thank you to all of you, you for joining us. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.